And now, The Mentors Radio, one of the most popular and unique shows on the air today. Here each week, remarkable CEOs and leaders, including hosts Tom Laurie and Dan Hesse, and their guests will mentor you, challenging your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their ethical leadership and advice, and for helping others succeed throughout their careers, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Learn more and check out the show notes at TheMentorsRadio.com. That's TheMentorsRadio.com. And now, here's your mentor. Welcome, I'm your host, Dan Hesse. Today's guest mentor is George Brett, the only player in Major League Baseball history to win batting titles in three decades, and the only player in history with 3,000 hits, 300 home runs, 600 doubles, 100 triples, and 200 stolen bases. In addition to a career batting average of over 300, he retired as the American League's all-time leader in being walked intentionally. During George's 21-year career with Kansas City, the Royals had 15 winning seasons with seven postseason and two World Series appearances, winning the World Series in 1985. A gold glove third baseman, his number five was retired by the Royals, and George was inducted into the Hall of Fame with the eighth highest vote tally ever. So welcome, George. It's a privilege to have you on the show. Well, it's an honor to be on your show, Dan. Well, I understand that you have a New Zealand accent on your <laughs> on your Siri. And was that influenced perhaps by Lord, who has the number one, who had that number one Grammy winning single when this, as I understand it, this New Zealand teenager was inspired to write the song when she saw a picture of you signing autographs? Uh, that's not why I've actually had it longer than, than that. Uh, my son Jackson lived in my oldest son, Jackson, who's 30. He lived in Australia for about two and a half years. And my wife and I would go visit him every year. And, uh, one year since you're so close to New Zealand, we decided, well, let's stop in New Zealand for a week. And I just thought New Zealand was the greatest place, uh, the most beautiful, country I've ever been in. And I just love the accent. And so I put Siri to be my New Zealand friend to give yeah. me directions. And I just, every time I ask Siri for something, it, it's, it's classic. Everybody goes, why do you have that voice on there? But I, that's just uh, kind of weird. And then when I got a chance to meet Lord, uh, you know, I didn't play my phone for, her, but uh, she was really a nice gal. I met her at a concert in uh, Vegas. Major League Baseball flew me out there. That song, I Want to Be Royal, was inspired by a picture she saw of me in, in an old, old, old sports or, uh, National Geographic before she was born. But she used wow. to look through magazines and she thought, thought that was a cool picture with all these people sticking baseballs in my in my face, want me to sign them. And I'm wearing a jersey that says Royals on it. And so that's how she came up with the song, I Want to Be Royal. Oh, that's great. We actually saw her get her Grammy. She was really young. I was at the, I, We were at the ceremonies in L.A. That's cool. So you yeah. grew up actually out in El Segundo, California, one of four boys. All four of you were drafted into Major League Baseball. You were drafted in the second round by the Royals. Was it fortuitous to be drafted by an expansion team at the time, in your view, versus one of the Blue Bloods like the Yankees, Red Sox, or Dodgers? 
Uh, yeah, I, I got lucky. I really did. Um, the night before the draft, the California Angels called, the Boston Red Sox called, and the San Francisco Giants all called and said, if we take you as a high draft pick, uh, we don't want to lose that pick. Are you going to sign or are you going to go to college? And I told everybody I was going to sign. Um, sure enough, the Kansas City Royals signed me in the second round, uh, the 29th player taken in the draft out of high school. And um, to be honest, Dan, it was that the Royals became a team in 1969. So their farm system wasn't really built up. I mean, they had 69 to build a farm system, 1970 to build it, to add to it, and then 71, the year I was drafted. I couldn't imagine getting drafted by the Baltimore Orioles, and they have a guy playing third base named Brooks Robinson, and I'm behind him. I think getting drafted by an expansion club definitely helped my progress. I was kind of... Well, I wasn't that big when I signed. I was 5'10", 175. And uh, by the time I was 21, I was six foot 200. So, you know, I was still growing and, and my body was maturing. Um, they saw something in me that they liked and they, they took a flyer on me. And sure enough, two years later, two and a half years later, I'm in the big leagues. Uh, at that time, the youngest player ever to play for the Royals in the big leagues. Since then, it's been broken numerous times. But uh, they gave a 21-year-old a chance that never hit 300 of the minor leagues to play in the major leagues. And uh, it wasn't a instant success. I didn't come in as a guy that's a can't-miss prospect. They just brought me up and uh, threw me out there, and I figured it out with the help of Charlie Lau and ended up playing 20 years there. Mentioning Charlie Lau, he watched you for quite a while. You were kind of struggled with major league pitching. You were right around what you describe as the Mendoza line, you were, you know, right around 200. But he let you struggle for a long time before coming up to you and asking if you wanted some help. Why did he wait so long? Well, he wanted to see if I would make any adjustments on my own, and I'll never forget the conversation. I was sitting 200 at the All-Star break, and I had about 200 at-bats. And he said, you know, I've watched you for 200 at-bats. Obviously, you're not doing well. And I'll go back. I never hit 300 of the minors. I hit 291, 280, and 270 in the minors. But in the big leagues, uh, I was hitting 200. And he just said, I've been watching, and and you haven't made one adjustment. And I said, Charlie, I don't know what adjustments to make. I, no one's ever worked on my hitting before. This is the way I've hit in high school and as a little league kid. And, and you know, I've never really struggled this bad. But it's kind of hard to change if you don't know what to change to. And he said, well, I got faith in you. If you give me faith, you know, we're, we'll go to work. And he said, right now, I'm the only coach that thinks you can play in the big leagues on the, on the Kansas City Royals. So we started working out every day, and he changed my whole outlook on hitting. He moved me off the plate. He got my bat parallel to the ground rather than straight up, so I'd get rid of that big loop in it. And uh, we, I remember setting a goal. He set a goal. Okay, our goal is to get 250 by the end of the year. A month and a half later, I was at 250, and I'll never forget this Dan coming back in the dugout, and I said, Charlie, we reached our goal. We reached our goal. We're at 250. He said, what are you talking about? Our goal's 260. I said, no, you said it was 250. He said it's 260. Well, I got it up to 292, so I must have hit, I mean, 360, 370 as a 21-year-old kid in the big leagues in the second half. And I was no longer hitting seventh or eighth or ninth. I was sitting like first or second or third. And and um, they fired Charlie Lau with four games to go in the season. I think I went one for 11 and ended up hitting 282. But uh, he came back the next year. Our manager got fired. They brought in a new guy, 
Whitey Herzog, the first thing Charlie did was come back to the Royals. And we continued to work every day, three o'clock on the road, four o'clock at home, taking extra swings just to just to really get that swing pattern to my body. And uh, without him, I don't think we would be doing this show right now. He was a great friend and a great coach and a great mentor to me. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, George Brett. Go to our website, thementorsradio.com, and click on list of shows to listen to past guests. This is Dan Hesse, and you are listening to The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with the greatest Kansas City Royal ever, George Brett. Remember, you can also listen to the show or any previous show via podcast on Apple, Spotify, TuneIn, iHeart, Stitcher, or Google on any device at any time. So, George, you stepped in as a temporary hitting coach. How did you enjoy that role? <laughs> well, I told our general manager, Dayton Moore, at the time, I said, Dayton, I'll try it for a month. I don't know. Dan, I've always heard the, the expression, those that do, those that can do, those that can't teach. <laughs> and you don't see many good hitters that are good coaches. And I didn't know if I was going to be a good hitting coach or not. But uh, I tried it for a month. Well, I, I told Dayton I would do it for a month. And, and you know, I'm doing all right. I thought, you know, we started winning some more ball games and some of the people were receptive. Um, and then all of a sudden, the, the players just turned turned away from me. I mean, I would be in the dugout. My assistant hitting coach was uh, the guy that's now the manager of the Chicago White Sox, Pedro Grafal. And uh, he and I would be sitting in the dugout or standing on the railing of the dugout watching our guys hit. And guys would come up and they wouldn't even talk to me. They would say, hey, Pedro, how'd that look? Pedro, how'd that look? I'd be throwing batting practice or he'd be throwing batting practice and I'd make a suggestion and they wouldn't listen. Pedro would make a, su a suggestion. They would listen. And all of a sudden, I realized that the players weren't taken to me after two months. Um, we kind of had a deal. I was the bad cop. He was the good cop. Mm -hmm. I would kind of get on guys a little bit. And Pedro would kind of put, put his arm around them and say, hey, you know, he's, we're, we're, trying to, we're trying to make you a better player. He's, I know this is his personality. And when people didn't listen to me, and I'll never forget one day I had a meeting with Ned Yost about something. And we have two in, two indoor cages downstairs right behind the dugout. And guys like to do their pregame workout in there, their routines. They'll swing one-handed and do put a tee, ball in the tee, and they'll do side tosses and all these things that we never did as a player because we never had facilities like this. And, and uh, like I said earlier, when I worked with Charlie Lau at 3 o'clock on, on the road, 4 o'clock at home, that was on the field. We didn't have any cages. We didn't have <clears> – <throat> We didn't have batting tees. We had nothing. It was all live BP from the coaches. And so, you know, I was, I come in and I'm going, okay, uh, Moose, come on over. I'll, I'll get you over here. And he said, no, I'll wait for Pedro. Oz, come on over. I'll do it. No, I'm waiting for Pedro. Salvi, come on in. No, I'm waiting for Pedro. And I said, well, obviously nobody wants to hear what I have to say. And I went in after the game and I told Ned Yost and I told Dayton Moore, I said, that's my last game. I'm never doing this again because the players just, they, did, they didn't want any part of what I had to say. And, Dan, in all honesty, the game had changed a little bit. Mm -hmm. When I played, it wasn't good to strike out. That was a no-no. I mean, you were embarrassed if you struck out. 
And this is when they had the shift and everybody was trying to hit the ball through the shift. And, and you probably saw me play. And if they put the shift on me at age 50, I think I could have hit 300 because I could, I could hit a ball the opposite way. If the shortstop went and played behind second base, I would just hit a ground ball to where the shortstop is. I could manipulate the bat head. These guys were all pulled. And they were all trying to create launch angle and hit home runs because that's what the game has come to. Strikeouts are acceptable. They don't care if you hit 220-230. Back in when I played, if you hit 220-230, you'd be in the minor leagues. But you look at the box scores now, there's so many guys that are hitting 220-230, and they're making $15, $20 million a year. So my, my hitting theory and the way I played the game had changed over time. And it evolved into something that I wasn't a big fan of. And I think that's why there was a clash in personalities between me and the players. And that's, I just decided to walk away. So going back in time on a similar theme, when you were a player, your teammates would listen to you. We've looked at leadership on the show, but usually from the point of view of an anointed leader, a CEO, a general, an admiral, a head coach, but you had to become a leader among your peers, your teammates. How did you earn that? And what did you try to instill in your teammates as a player? Well, just to play hard and go out there and play hard. I had three goals every time I set foot on a major league baseball field. Nobody was going to get dirtier than me. Nobody was going to have more fun than me. And if I go out there and have fun, you know, you're, you're grinding and you're grinding and all of a sudden you're hitting a double play in a crucial situation. You strike out in a crucial situation. Yeah, what you don't see behind that dugout, there's a little room back there. And, man, I'd take that helmet off and I'd fire it against the wall and I would get a bat and start banging stuff around because it hurt so bad. And the third thing that I tried to do was I wanted to be the best player on the field. That was the hardest. Every day my goal was to be the best player on the field. I could very easily accomplish the first two, being the dirtiest player out there, having more fun than anybody else out there. That, that was easy. But to be the best player on the field that given night, that was hard. And there were a lot of nights that I was not the best player on the field, but there were a lot of nights I was. But the one thing that I think, I never had clubhouse meetings and called everybody in uh, and said, hey, guys, you know, we got to do this. I tried to set an example. I ran balls out. I tried to stretch singles into doubles, doubles into triples. Uh, I would always, after a tough, a tough loss, whoever, whoever, say Dan Quisenberry came in and he gave up two runs in the bottom of the or the top, the bottom of the ninth inning on the road, and we lost the ball game. Well, everybody kind of stayed away from him, and I'd go to my locker for a while, and then I'd always go go try to sit with him. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd go sit with him and just talk to him. Hey, Dan, Dan, we play 162 games. One game's not going to make a season. We got to forget what happened, figure out what you did wrong. You know, and there are plenty of times that I, I screwed up and we lost the ball game. Plenty of times. I wasn't the best fielder. I won one gold glove in 20 years. You know, there are a lot of times I led the league in errors as a third baseman. There are a lot of times pitchers were pissed off at me because I had let in, you know, with a ground ball with two outs and, and two guys on. And next thing you know, I, let, I boot a ball and the next guy hits a three-run double. All the runs are unearned, but he sucks up the loss, you know. So there are a lot of times that, that I screwed up games for our team. But the one thing that I always tried to do is just try to have a positive attitude around my teammates. And like I said earlier, nobody was going to play harder than I did. 
with that intensity that you played with and that hustle, one of your teammates told me what you brought to the clubhouse was kind of a sense of calmness that really helped the team. If you look at company culture, I find, you know, there's lots of things that contribute to company performance. There's the right strategy, the right players, if you will, the right people. But I'd say culture is the most important. How did you balance your personal intensity hustle with bringing calmness to the clubhouse, which at least according to the teammate I talked to, really made a positive difference? Well, Baseball was my life. I had no wife, no kids at home. I didn't get married until I was 39 years old. I loved playing baseball. I loved the atmosphere. I loved the camaraderie, being with the guys in the locker room. And uh, I liked to have fun. Like I said earlier, nobody was going to have more fun on the field. Well, nobody was going to have more fun before the game or after the game than I was, too. You know, so you get in the locker room. You're trying to make everybody relaxed. I'm relaxed. Once the game starts, it's a different thing. Sitting in the dugout when you're not performing. Say somebody else is hitting. Yeah, I'm joking around in the dugout, having fun, laughing at people, and and just you know trying to make everybody as relaxed as they possibly can. <clears throat> Once I got on the on deck circle, it was time to bear down a little bit. Once I got in the in the batter's box, it was really time to bear down. You know, yeah. and you can't play a baseball game, three hour game, and be so focused three straight hours. That's impossible. So you got to have those little breaks in between. And we, we all know a golfer from Kansas City area, Gary Woodland. And I played golf with Gary. He won the U.S. Open a few years ago and uh, at Pebble Beach. And I played a lot of rounds of golf with him. And he's talking. He's having a good time. We're laughing. And then he puts his glove on. Watch, watch him when he next time you watch him. And as soon as he puts his glove on, he always goes like this. And as soon as he goes like this, he's focused. That's his, that's his key. Well, my, I think my key was when I got in the batter's box and I would start digging my little hole or put my foot in my little hole. That was my this. Okay, I'm focused. I'm centering, and I'm as focused as I'll be the rest of the day until my next at-bat, and I'm going to stay focused until that at-bat's over. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Hall of Famer George Brett. You can listen to our show worldwide on iHeartRadio or on your favorite podcast platform like Apple or Spotify. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with baseball superstar George Brett about team culture. So following up on culture in the dugout, which you've described a little bit, what do you think about the way it looks like the culture in dugouts has changed with people wearing hats and chains and belts and all of that? What's, what's your take on that? I don't like that at all. Uh, but again, that's the game. I don't like the NFL when they score a touchdown and they have these big choreographed celebrations. I don't like that. You know, you do that back in the 70s and the 80s in the NFL. And that's, by the way, when I played baseball, 70s and the 80s and a short time in the 90s. But, uh, you know, you didn't see any of that. I mean, you went out there and if you hit a home run, you would go sit in the dugout. Now you, they put you in a shopping cart or they put a thing over your head or they put a jacket on and, and all this stuff. I mean, I tell you what, if you were going to face Bob Gibson or some of the pitchers or Goose Gossage, probably the majority of pitchers back then, if you did that back then, 
you would be having a baseball hit your nut your next at bat. Yeah. But the game's changed. The whole culture of sports has changed, in my opinion. I don't get it. You know, what's funny, when, when I played, Dan, you watch a game now, everybody has iPads. You could, you're allowed iPads. And we used to sit there and watch the game. We would just watch the game. We didn't have all this statistical data on the other pitcher. We knew he threw hard. We knew he had a good curveball. We knew he threw a, he had a good changeup. That's all we knew. But nowadays, they have all this data, and they'll say, okay, 49% of the times on the first pitch, he throws a fastball. If it's 0-1-1, 38% of the time, he throws a curveball. You know, and it's all this statistical data and stuff. And then what they do is they go back and they watch their video of their last at-bat while the game's going on. What we would do is we would watch the pitcher. And we would say, oh, God, look, he's got a, he's got a really good curveball, but he's not getting it over. Oh, he can't get his changeup over. So you know in a crucial situation from watching the game, an account that's very favorable that he has to throw a strike, he's not going to throw a pitch that he can't get over for a strike. Mm. And so that's, that's how we played the game. But the game is today is completely different, completely different. Nobody you watches the game from the dugout. Nobody. So you said you got nervous when you played, that you had nerves, yet you performed well kind of day in and day out, and you performed particularly well in the times you'd think you'd be the most nervous, the big moments. I looked at your your stats in the postseason in your two World Series and your six American League Championship Series. Combined, you hit over 370 with 10 homers. Previous guest, actually my my last guest on this show was Joe Montana, another player who played at his best in the big moments, but he also said he was nervous when he took the field. How did you channel your nervousness into performance? Well, I don't know if you're nervous because you're afraid of failing or if you're just anticipating going out there and playing in front of a lot of people. I never could understand or, or, or do the difference, but before every game, I was my heart would be, it was beaten. I'd run out of the field, and, man, it was it was like I had AFib going on. But then that first pitch was thrown, and all of a sudden I was able to relax. It was just the nervous anticipation. You know, you go out and you're playing in front of 30,000, 40,000 people, and, and you're not sure. You're, you're not that confident that you're not going to make an error. You're not that confident that you're not going to cost your team the game. You're not that confident that you are going to do something good. So I think it's just that nervous anticipation of going out there and performing. And I would be curious to ask a rock star, you know, a guy like, let's say Garth Brooks, who goes out there and performs and, or Taylor Swift. Now you could probably get her on your show. <laughs> I couldn't get her online, but you could get her on yours. Are you nervous before you, as you're walking up there, all of a sudden the announcer is starting to say, and ladies and gentlemen, now entering the stage. Are you nervous right then? Is your heart beating a little faster? But then as soon as that first chord is struck, as soon as that first pitch is thrown, I'm, I'm, I'm in my element. I am really in my element, and I would be able to relax. And then when you talk about clutch situations and games on the line and success in big games, I always thought in that situation, uh, seventh, eighth, ninth inning, if I could breathe – I was fine. If I could breathe, 
because I know I would always tell myself, I know this pitcher doesn't want to face me. He wants no part of me. And I would look out to him and he would be, and I would be, because the faster you breathe, the faster your heart beats. And I wanted to slow everything down. The harder you try, the more tension you get in your grip, the more pressure you start grabbing that bat with. And in baseball, it's got to be short, quick, and fluid. Because if you're gripping it tight, you're not going to be fluid. So I was able to relax. And all I had to do was relax more than the pitcher was able to relax. And then it's just mono y mono. Some days he's going to get you out, but I always tried to put myself physically and mentally in the best position possible to succeed when the game was on the line. And, and I was very successful in doing that. Well, it's probably why you are the all-time leader in intentional walks. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the manager on the other side's doing. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's observing the calm George Brett and right. my nervous pitcher. Well, Dan, I'll tell you a funny story. Every time I walk up to home plate, first inning, Heart's beating a little bit. You know, I haven't really got any action yet. I'd walk in, I'd dig my little hole, put my foot on the back line. I'd turn around and tell the umpire, I said, how's my favorite umpire doing today? Just to kind of relax me a little bit. Yeah. And then the catcher would say, Jesus, George just said, babe. I said, I've never said that before. Are you kidding? The first time I've ever said that. Just right now, because this guy is my favorite umpire. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, okay, you put that foot back down and then we get back to the Gary Woodland hand pound. Then I put my foot back in and it was focused as hard as I could focus on seeing the ball and putting a good swing on it. So George, you spent your entire 21 year career with the Royals. Do you ever regret missing out on free agency? Not just the money, but it was typically the big market teams that were getting the big money free agents and the, and maybe the fame and notoriety that might've come with that. No, I, I have no regrets. If I had to do it over again, and I was very fortunate, the dollar discrepancy wasn't like it is now. I mean, I think the Royals payroll this year would be close to $100 million. The L.A. Dodgers just signed a guy for $700 million for 10 years or what, yeah. and they go out and sign another guy for three. Uh, now the discrepancy is pretty good. Uh, back then, I could have, yeah, I probably, if I was, if I really wanted to, Dan, I, I probably could have played out my first five-year contract, said I'm going to be a free agent. But, you know, where was I going to go? I didn't want to go to a place that was going to lose. I want, I loved playing, playing in October, and I loved playing in Kansas City. Kansas City was great. When I came up in 73, my first full year uh, was uh, 73. I was there for a month and a half. 74 was my first full year. Okay. Well, the Oakland days were the world champions. They were the world champions in 73, 74, and 75. They were in our division. So now I'm 23 years old, and we win our division. So we win our division when I'm 20, my, in 76, 77, 78, 79, we lost by one game. 81, our division. 81, we lost in the mini playoffs because of the strike. 84, win our division. 85, win our division. And in the meantime, I have signed a five-year contract. Where was I going to go? Remember, I said, I want to play in October. We went to the playoffs seven out of ten, 10 years. So what I did is I signed a five-year contract. Three years go by. The Royals were happy with what I was giving them on the field. I was very happy with what they were providing me as a team. I'm saying, I'm staying here. So I signed another five-year contract. And then about four years go by after that. And now I have two years left. I sign another five-year contract. 
And little did I know after the 85 series that we wouldn't get back to the playoffs. And, and, and for whatever reason, other teams got better and we, we didn't climb the ladder with them uh, on a, on a personnel basis. But if I had to do it over again, yeah, I would do it exactly the same. But the only thing I would do different is every time I signed a five-year contract, that first, second year, I was one of the highest paid players in the game. And then all of a sudden, they would pass you year three, four, and five. And the one thing that you know, I noticed about Major League Baseball, no one ever gets a pay cut. No one ever gets a pay cut. Mm-hmm. I would have signed 21-year contracts. <laughs> <laughs> Because I had some years where I didn't get a raise and I had some pretty good years, but it was all built in. And the only reason that I signed those contracts is because the money's all guaranteed. So you're going to leave some money on the on the table, I think. But at the same time, if you have that career ending shoulder surgery or knee surgery, you're getting paid in full for the life of that contract. So it's a give or take, but I would do it all over again and I would probably do it in Kansas City. I, I can't see myself living in California. I can't see myself living in New York. I can't see myself living in Cleveland. I could see myself playing and Colorado was too cold. Uh, I, I could see Texas in, in Dallas. I liked, I always liked Dallas. I could see myself as a Boston Red Sox. And that's about the only other team. Because I love Fenway Park so much and I love the people in Boston. We'll be back in a few minutes with Hall of Famer George Brett discussing leadership. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with one of the greatest hitters in baseball history, George Brett, about performing under pressure. So it's 1980, George, you hit 390, the highest average achieved in the majors. You're looking back now in 82 years. What did your father have to say? What did your father have to say to you about that accomplishment? You mean to tell me you couldn't get five more freaking hits? <laughs> if you would have taken better care of yourself, you would have got five more hits. That's just amazing to me. You've talked about this, that you, your brothers, your mom, were abused by your father, yet, you well, know. I wouldn't say abused. He was just a very difficult man. Very so difficult man. But, you know, you have turned out to be what seems like a very happy, positive person, great father, husband, your brother's all successful. Tell me just a little bit about your mom and your brothers and and how in that environment, how you all flourished in life. Well, I, I, I think I said something to the effect, Dan, in my Hall of Fame speech, you know, talking about your brothers, how important they were in your life, your mother for always being there for you and, you know, raising raising us. And then I, I, I said to the effect of, you know, growing up, I, I never understood your tough and dominant ways. But I looked at my brothers. We were all very successful. And that maybe maybe why. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I know I was scared to death of him until the day he died. Till the day he died, I was scared to death of him. And I think my brother John was scared to death of him. My brother Ken and my brother Bobby, they didn't get in as much trouble as my brother John and I. But, uh, yeah, he ruled. <clears throat> there was no excuses. It's his way or the highway. And, and some days it, it wasn't pretty uh, if you didn't do things his way. And, uh, um, 
you know, Dan, I went to his funeral, found out I have two sisters that I never knew about, two half sisters. So <clears throat> was he a good husband? No. Was he a good father? I don't think he was, but uh, uh, he did something right. All three of my brothers were very successful in not only business, uh, uh, but in, in their baseball careers. Two of them, me and my brother Ken made it to the major leagues. My other two didn't, but my other two are, are successful. Maybe if my dad was, you know, not so tough on us, we would have been, we wouldn't have had the drive to succeed as much as we had. I, I don't know. I really don't know. It's really testament to the rest of your family. I think that you've all turned out as well as, as you have. And that story about the funeral, which you just shared is, is amazing. So on the subject of kind of success and success in life, how do you, George, define success? Well, if, if I had to define my success, it would be to be at the top of your game for your career, for your career or a long period of time. I said earlier, I tried to be the best player on the field every game. I wasn't, but I tried. Um, but I look at my overall career numbers, 20 years in the big leagues, hit over 300 in that. I think I became a successful person. Uh, that's, that's what I would define as success by excelling in what your profession is for a long, long period of time. Um, um, <clears throat> maybe being an example when parents talk to their kids and say, this is how he did it. This is how you should do it. Uh, kind of a role model type thing. Uh, you know, it's funny. I go to games now in Kansas City and they have a statue of me there and they have my number retired and there'll be a 12 year old kid that never saw me play. There'll be a 25 year old kid that never saw me play because I retired more than 25 years ago. And and they'll probably look at those things and say, who's that guy, dad? Now, it's the dad's job is to relay the way I played to the son. And that's in, you know, that to me would be having a successful career. And how do you define happiness? Well, you know, some days I'm happy, Dan. Some days I'm not. I mean, I, I, I'm happy doing what I want when I want. I'm happy when the weather's good. I'm glad I'm in Arizona right now because Kansas City's like five degrees and here it's 50. <laughs> Yesterday, I went to the health club to work out at the sanctuary and I drove there. It was overcast. It wasn't raining. I parked my car within... I had to I had to walk. I basically ran 30 yards from where the parking lot is to the door to get into the into the spa. And by the time I got there, I was drenched. And by the time when I opened the door to the car, there wasn't one drop of rain on my car and it started sprinkling and then a cloud. I wasn't happy. That didn't <laughs> make me happy. I felt happier when I walked out of the gym, you know, in the spa an hour and a half later and the sun was out and I had worked out, taken my scheme, shaved, shampooed. I felt great. I was happy, you know, <laughs> but what defines happiness to me is I, you know, that's a, that's a tough one. It really is. I've never really thought about it. I've never thought about it, but you know, I'm always happy when we have, well, once a week we have my kids come over. My kids live, I have three boys, 30, 29 and 28. And they all live within five miles of where I live. We try to get together one night a week, usually Sunday nights for dinner. That's happy times. I usually grill. The kids love to grill. When they were younger, they didn't like to, but now they all live on their own and they all have grills in their backyard and they love to grill. So 
when we go out there and we grill together, we have some beers together, we have a little putting contest on the putting green. That's fun. Because you know what? I never did that with my dad. I never did anything with my dad. Never did anything. And I try to do as much as I can with, with my kids. Every year for the Chiefs Raider game out in Las Vegas, the last three years, I've taken my kids down there. We play golf two days and go to the Chiefs game and gamble with them. And they're horrible gamblers. Horrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that's, that's great. We'll be back in a few minutes with Hall of Famer George Brett discussing the importance of family. You'll find all of our show notes and links at TheMentorsRadio.com. For those who listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or on one of the many podcast platforms that carry our show, if you enjoy these conversations, please give us a good review and tell a friend. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with the only baseball player to win batting titles in three decades, George Brett, discussing success and happiness. So, George, when you hear our national anthem, what do you recite to yourself? I uh, I recite the Little League Pledge. You've done a lot of ho homework for this, and the Little League Pledge goes like this. I trust in God, I love my country, and will respect its laws. I will play fair and strive to win, but win or lose, I will always do my best. And I probably started, I had to learn that probably when I was eight years old, nine years old, when I started playing Little League, and they would always play the national anthem in El Segundo, where I played, and then they would, you would have to recite that. So I did that till I was 12, and then it just became a habit to me, and every time I hear that song, the national anthem, I would always say that. And all that did, Dan, was remind me when I was playing professional baseball in either Billings, Montana, uh, San Jose, California, Omaha, Nebraska, Kansas City. It's a game that kids play and to have fun. I think that was a constant reminder every day to say that. And and it's amazing. I ask guys all the time about, you know, do you know, the, did you play Little League? Yeah. Well, what's the Little League pledge? They don't remember it. And I said, I still remember because I've been saying it every time. I'll go to a Chiefs game and I'll say it. You know, I go to yeah. any sporting event game. It, it just it just drilled in my mind and my body that that's what I'm supposed to say. So for our listeners, George and I are looking at each other on a, on a Zoom screen. And George is wearing a KC, the city of Kansas City, T-shirt. Yes. So you, grew up in, you grew up in California but you've really adopted Kansas city as your home. What makes KC special to you? Well, the, the weather, it's not the weather. I'll tell you that <laughs> <laughs> it's too hot and humid in July and August. And it's too cold in, in the winter time. Although you can get some great days. I was home two weeks and uh, I went home on the 14th of December. I think I played golf on the 16th, which is a rarity. I think it was like 55, 60 degrees. But I, I just think it's a beautiful town. Um, it adopted me uh, when I came up. Again, it was with no fanfare. I just some 20-year-old kid that came in from growing up in California that was getting a chance to play every day. And everybody welcomed me. And, and um, uh, it's just a, it's a beautiful town. I think it's got great Midwest values. The food is fantastic. And the people that I've met there is are incredible and i'll tell you a quick thing again you 
we were kind of neighbors for a while, you know, live very close to one another. And, and Kansas City is a very philanthropical town, a lot of, a lot of charity and a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, things like that. And uh, I know pretty much everybody I know is involved with some type of a charity in Kansas City. I've been involved with ALS for over 40 years and, and host golf tournaments every year to raise awareness and funds to cure ALS. I don't know anybody that I grew up with in California that's involved in any charity. And I think that really woke me up when I started getting involved and going to other friends' events. And everybody on the Royals team is involved in the charity. And I think that's really good about that town. I agree with you there. Well, George, with your incredible work ethic, focus, leadership qualities, coachability, your ability to perform well under pressure. You know, I think even if baseball didn't work out, you would have been successful in any field, you know, like business. To our listeners, please go to thementorsradio.com for show notes and other resources. You can also listen to us on the major podcast platforms like Spotify, Google, and Apple, and on iHeartRadio worldwide. Please join us next week for another edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Dan Hesse signing off. Remember, we're never too informed or experienced to stop learning. Thank you. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.thementorsradio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.